Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to the new Mutual Audio Network. Welcome home. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. I'm David Alt, and you're listening to the world's largest, longest-running showcase of modern audio drama. And after some seasons, I'm back in the tortoise looking for Jack, who has been missing almost two full months now. We're hoping to hone in on his signal in the October Madness horror region of the Audioverse, of the larger Podioverse. But podcast and audio drama have grown almost exponentially since we last travelled these worlds. It could be like looking for a needle in a haystack. I tried closing in on the 10-year signal last week when the tortoise time or radio theatre interdimensional space, of course, was first created, thinking that at least Jack could be found somewhere within the vicinity of the Sonic Society Explored audio space. But I'm beginning to lose hope. It's been a week now since our last try, so uh, let's try something different. Let's go for uh, Strange Circle with The Song Dance and My Life with Ginger. And it all begins right here. On the Sonic Society? Jack! A January evening. Jack Simmons walks from the train station to his home. It's only six o'clock but the winter hours made it as dark as full night. It's just stopped raining, and the glow of the town sets the roadways alive, fantasy lights glinting in the gloom. It's a journey he takes every day. He's oblivious to the people walking past him, lost in the music blasting between his ears. I could see all this, from where I sat in my car. He begins the climb up the hill towards his flat, and I twist around to check on the bag I've carefully laid on the back seat. I watch him pass the taxi place with its blazing neon sign, and then I turn on the engine. I drive past him without a glance. I know that if I park my car just after the church, he will be visible in a few minutes. Sure enough, there he is, all swagger and indifference. I put him at about six foot two after comparing some of the photographs I'd taken. Taller than me, but that had never been a problem before. He passes in front of my car 
not ten feet away from me. He never knew I was there. He has never looked at me once. The first time I saw him, he was in a car and I was out. He was in the back of a black cab, fresh off his commute. I took one look at his face and the song began, the song that is wretched was also divine. The song that drives me to dance and leads me along until we both crescendo. I've tried to analyze my choices. What is it about them that triggers the music in my head? I have no answer there. And perhaps it's time I stopped questioning. <sighs> That's funny. It's way past time to be questioning myself. I remember I noticed the shape of his ear. The right one, the one that faced me. It was completely attached to the side of his face with no hanging lobe at all. Then his nose, large and aquiline, giving his profile a strong, righteous air. The cab drove off as I stood there watching. It took five days of staking out the front of the station to catch him again. This time he left on foot, and I followed. The library held thousands upon thousands of books. I was lost in its depths, in a forest grove of older. Chapter, paragraph, word, all conspired to overwhelm me. Before now, my selection had been naught but a random choice. As much chance of finding the right book as winning with a lottery ticket. After this, I would search far and wide, up, over, down, north, against, south, to discover the key. I began to learn his routines and his rituals. His walk from the station to his home was the same every night, apart from on a Friday. Then he would take a cab to a pub on the other side of town. I drank with him once at the bar, my back towards his back. He ordered a Glenmorangie neat with a splash of water and I copied him. I listened as he chatted with his two friends about sex, about politics, nothing consequential. I learnt that he liked to put down his so-called friends whenever he could. He always had the better story, the better answer to some trivial question. 
When he went to piss, his friends talked about him behind his back. Mostly, they complained. Welcome back to the Hour of the Dead. My name is Derek Dunning, and I'm going to be with you here until the witching hour. (laughs) Now, a lot of you have been waiting for our next guest for many weeks. We tried to get her on in December, but she pulled out at the last minute. Maybe we'll hear more about that right now. Joining us via phone is Hilly Sanderson, celebrated medium and author of Spirited Discussions, My Life with Ginger. Hilly, how are you this evening? I'm very well, thank you, Derek. Thanks for having me on. Well, our listeners have been writing in non-stop since your near appearance at Christmas. In fact... It was your disappearance at that time that they were so interested about. Can you tell me what happened? Well, that's a complicated question, Derek. Firstly, let me apologise for missing that appointment. It was, shall we say, completely out of my control. Well, what exactly happened, Tilly? Well, I hadn't heard from Ginger in three weeks, which was very unusual for her. I've been increasing my meditation time in order to get back in touch, and I was in rather a deep trance state when I was taken over. Taken over? Now, for listeners who uh, don't know, Ginger is Hilly's spirit guide. What do you mean you were taken over? I mean that a demonic entity from the other side laid claim to my earthly vessel. I see. So, were you aware it was happening? Did you have any control? I did begin to fight him at first, but he was able to cause me pain in the right-hand side of my head. I thought it best then to open up a dialogue and see what was what. A dialogue? Yes, we had a nice chat. He said I could call him Job. But that wasn't his real name, of course. Ah, yes, that's right. If you remember our episode on exorcism, knowing a demon's true name is the ultimate weapon against him. That's right. Well remembered, Derek. Job told me he'd been sent to carry out a mission. He had to find a priest and collect an item which was in his keeping. It all sounded like the plot to a bad horror film. But I said hey-ho, and he took charge of the bus, so to speak. Three, one, 125. 13, 9, 108. 
I wait until he's far enough away from me, and then I leave the car. I follow him from a distance. I wasn't scared of losing him. I knew where he lived after all. I stop when he reaches his building. He fishes into his pocket for a moment, looking for his keys maybe. Then he enters the doorway and vanishes from view. I must ready myself for what is to come. It's surprisingly easy to trick your way into a locked building. That part will be no trouble at all. The danger comes with the dance. We will both hear the song then. We will dance it together. Only his song will reach an end. I walk up to the door of his building. There is the usual row of doorbell buttons and I carefully select one I know is not his. There's a short pause and then a crackling voice says, Hello? I put on my most cheerful and polite voice. I'm so sorry, I live downstairs in 1B. I've locked myself out. Could you buzz me in please? No problem. The voice says, and the door. I know that he lives on the ground floor. There's a ding from the lift, and I scoot around the corner so I'm not seen. I hear someone leaving the building. When it's quiet, I find the corridor that leads to his front door. And welcome back. I hope that that windy weather is not going to spoil your weekend plans. You're listening to Derek Dunning's Hour of the Dead. My guest, Hilly Sanderson, has been waiting patiently on the phone, and when we left her story, she had just been taken over by something from the other side. Possessed, yes. So, you would call it a possession? Well, yes. What else would it be? I suppose I have a more Hollywood view of what a possession is. No pea soup for you, then. Hmm, no. I forgot how funny you are, Derek. And were you aware during this possession? At first, yes. I had to help the poor thing find my car keys, and he couldn't drive at all. He was kind of a passenger inside me, inside the car, for a while. He was watching, though. After a few minutes, he got the hang of it and he pushed me out of the way. And you went to see this priest? 
I assume we did. After about 20 minutes in the car, I must have passed out. I have no memory of the next 24 hours. My God, Hilly, that is terrifying. Well, yes. It was disconcerting, to say the least. And I wasn't very clean. The beast had left me a mile away from my car. It was an uncomfortable journey home, let me tell you. And nothing more has come of it? Did you try to find the priest? I didn't have much to go on. I've been left at the arse end of Merseyside, and you can't throw a fit in Liverpool for fear of hitting a priest. It's lousy with them. <laughs> that is quite a tale, Hilly. And one I am very glad that you lived through. Hilly is going to answer some of your questions right after this message. There is a majesty to it, a dramatic melding of force and form. I move like a dancer, open wide one moment and intimate the next. It is a part of the song and it runs through me like a wildfire. I knock on his door, standing in the gloom. I'd waited for the automatic lights to turn off so as to remain hidden. I hear shuffling sounds, and then a click as he turns the lock. He opens the door wide without a care. Light spills from his home and floods over me. He smiles for just a moment, and his lips begin to form a word, but then he senses something is wrong. Perhaps he can see the murder in my eyes. Maybe even he can hear the song now, in his last minutes on the earth. I take a strong step forward and push him hard in the middle of his chest. He flies backwards and crashes into the wall, just beyond the hallway. He crumples, groaning, and then remembers I am there. He scrabbles towards one of the open doorways, and I follow him inside. I take in the layout of the room in an instant. It is predictably high-end, stark metal furniture and a glass coffee table. I make a note to avoid this. My goal is always not to make a mess. Extracting the media comes later. He is whimpering predictable. This kind pretended to be alpha male, but when the chips were down they revert to subservience. I am still stood over him. He's making a small effort to crawl further into the room, but I place a foot on his back and push down hard. He yelps as his chin hits the hardwood floor. I slip a large cable tie from my back pocket and singe his hands together cruelly. He starts to beg. I don't want him beneath me. I put my arms around his shoulders and yank him upwards. He can't dance if he's not on his feet. He is snivelling now. I turn him around to face me. Our noses almost touch. I ignore his tears and snot and look into his eyes. It is exquisitely intimate and as I stare, he falls silent. The song rallies in my brain. I can hear nothing else. 
and from the look on his face I know he hears it too. I hold him for the dance. My hands close around his neck. He is so shaken that I'm the only thing holding him up. His weight added to his own throttling. We move together, a controlled sway back and forth, the last breath gurgling in his throat. I've positioned my hands in such a way as to cut off his air. Now comes the crescendo, the point of extremis. His body reacts to the lack of oxygen, fighting and twisting for breath. I hold him tightly, eager to match his technique with my own. The dance is always longer than I think. My hands are ready for this work, but the effort is extreme. After about a minute, sweat begins to pour from my head. He looks dead. But I know that if I stop, something inside him could kick him back to life. I continue to look into his eyes, now surrounded with skin the colour of a ripe plum. Another minute, and I know it's over. The music seems distant now. And soon, it will be gone. For a while. Al Ashworth, creator of the Strange Circle podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to visit the Strange Circle website for more facts, stories and clues. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would be very grateful if you could rate and review, especially on iTunes. If you're feeling generous, please sponsor me on Patreon. This podcast is a labour of love and any help you can give is gratefully received. You can find all the information at pod.strangecircle.org. Thanks for listening. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying. Their end, no doubt, is right. Because their words had forked no lightning, they do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last way, wild by men who crying, how bright the sun and might learn to agree, they believed it on its rage. Do rage not go gentle and die to the night. Men near death who see with blinding sight Blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay Rage, rage against the dying of the light And you, my father Curse, 
sitting up in my bed. It's early in the morning, and Janine and Sarah are still fast asleep. I think I must have been about four. A noise has woken me up, and there, standing at the foot of the bed, is a young woman. She looked then, as she looks now, a tall, statuesque lady in her early twenties. She wore a long, pale yellow dress with frills at the hemline and at the shoulders. An orange ribbon made the waist, and a rectangular collar showed off her long, proud neck. Her face is pretty, but not beautiful. Her mouth is thin, and sometimes gives her a mean look. Her nose is button-like, and her eyes a deep shade of green. It was her hair that my four-year-old self latched onto, though. Long red curls falling to her shoulders. It was a little too light to be called Auburn. No, she was ginger through and through. She didn't speak to me that time. She just looked at me with a faint smile on her face. I didn't feel frightened. I presume I thought she was just another person in the house that I hadn't met yet. My parents had taken in some servicemen convalescing after the war, and there were always people coming and going. I must have fallen back to sleep, and when I woke, she was gone. I told my sisters about her, and they made fun of me. It was the first time I learned that my gift was not always something I should let on about. I never told my mum or dad. I saw her about once a week, always early in the morning, until I was about eight. That was when she spoke to me for the first time. Bring me another, like before. Odulations pierce the night. 
like primitives we are to them. Whomsoever seeks them out, ever wanders nearer underground. Righteous, they evolved above us. It was like a whisper in the centre of my head. I remember I was sitting up at the kitchen table, eating lunch. My mum had her back to me, washing up at the kitchen sink. The sun was streaming through the window, and as I watched the dust motes dance, I saw that the woman was standing there. The bright light made her translucent, and I realised for the first time she wasn't really there, not like me or mum. She grinned at me, full-on beaming face, and I heard her words for the first time. I'm so happy you can see me. I think I gasped as my mum turned round to ask me what was wrong. When I looked back, the woman was gone. Later that afternoon, she was there in the bedroom where I was playing. She sat in the window, the light again shining through her, letting me know she was special. She said hello, and I fought away my nervousness to say hello back. She said her name was Ginger, and she asked about my dolls and my books, and we ended up spending the afternoon chatting quite happily. When I heard my sister's return, she cautioned me not to speak to her when others were around. I would look crazy, as they wouldn't be able to see her. She also said it was best not to talk about her at all. I was so happy I'd found her. My sisters were both a lot older than me, and they pretty much left me to myself. I think I was lonely, if I'm honest. And now I had a new special friend to talk with, and share secrets with. And as I grew, I found that some of the things that Ginger knew could help people. Fourteen to one hundred fifty nine. Four to one hundred nine. Sixteen one seven. Ten three seventy. Twenty seven four fifty one. to tonight's hour of the dead with me Derek Dunning we're having a call-in spot this evening so I want to invite you to tell me your spooky stories things that you've seen that you can't explain call the usual number and if you get through you can try to scare me and it looks like we're off Barry who do you have for me we have Sheila from Ootal and she has a question okay hi there Sheila you are on the air what's your question <laughs> oh God, I'm on. Hi, Derek. My friend Tina and me want to know if you've ever seen a ghost. 
Well, I've told this story a few times before on the show, uh, but we'll do it again quickly. I haven't seen a ghost, uh, but I have heard what I consider to be ghosts. It was when I was a boy, I was uh, at my friend's house, and we used to rehearse there in the attic, because we had a band. Um, it was a massive house, run as a farm, an old lodge of a manor. He used to tell me stories of all these weird things that had happened to him in this house, like he would step out of the shower and find all the sink taps turned on, even though the door was locked. So one day after practice, the rest of the family were out and we were both standing in the front hall. I'd read a lot of books on ghost hunting and they said that you could encourage ghosts by creating a spooky atmosphere. There was a baby's music box there. There was a baby in the house and I wound it up and started it. Let me tell you, there is nothing as spooky as a music box in a big empty house. Oh my god, what happened? It was quiet for a while, and then the sound of a conversation could be heard coming from way above us, towards the top of the house. We knew there was no one else there. It was like hearing people talk from the next room. You can hear the ups and downs of the voices, but can't quite make out what's being said. And then the dog went crazy. It began to bark angrily and then ran to the kitchen door. The door was closed and it poured at the bottom, trying to get in. Then it seemed to chase something from the kitchen around the corner to the front door, barking all the time. And then it all just stopped. The atmosphere changed. It was all gone. Well, I wish I could see a ghost. Well, be careful what you wish for. Thank you for your call, Sheila. Barry, do we have anyone with their own story to tell? Uh, yes, Derek, I have Ernie here. Uh, he says he has a spook story. Hello, Ernie. What gruesome tale do you have to tell us? Oh, no. Nothing like that. Um, I want to talk about this business of shadow people. Shadow people? Yes, Ernie, we have covered that before. Have you seen something like that? Yes, sir. While I was at my sister's flat, she's on the sixth floor overlooking a car park. We were just on our way out the other night, when we both saw something moving between the cars. And what did it look like, Ernie? A black mist, maybe. It was very difficult to make it out. It fits the description of a shadow person, though, right? Well, it certainly seems so. Do you know if the building has a history of being haunted or anything like that? Oh, I don't know that. I'll ask my sister, though, and we'll try and find it out. That will be great, Ernie, and uh, please phone back if you've got any more information and try to take a video of it. Thanks for phoning in. Now, I think we've got one more time uh, before the station break. Yes, and here is Susan from the West Midlands. Uh, she's got a story about her cat. Ah, oh, yes, well, we love a good cat story. Uh, Susan, how are you tonight? Um, Susan, have we lost you? Okay, um, I think the call has dropped, Barry. Goodbye to Susan, if she's still there. Do you know the crooked way? Hello, is that Susan? Uh, can you hear me okay? Do you know the crooked way? Uh, can you 
be a little um, clearer, cooler? The crooked way that passes by the graveyards. We are cheated out of them. Are you a cheater? Are you a cheater? Are you a cheater? Cheater! It started with little things. If something was lost in the house, Ginger would be able to tell me where it was. My father once joked that it happened so often, I must be hiding the objects in the first place. By the time I was 14, this fact was common knowledge in the neighbourhood, which is when I got my first lost pet. Judy Allaby was an older girl that lived in the next street. She was devoted to her dog, Molly. Molly the Collie, we called her. Molly had been off her lead in the back garden of their home and had disappeared. Judy had looked everywhere, asked everyone. She put up signs and all the nearby news agents, even offering a reward. She was desperate to find poor Molly. That's when she arrived on our doorstep, asking to see me. My mum took her into the parlour and we all sat together. Judy asked if I could find the dog for her. Mum was puzzled at this. She had no idea that my fame in finding lost objects had grown beyond the house. In the end, it was decided that no harm would come from me trying. Of course, they didn't know who really found all those things. I waited until the evening and went upstairs to my bedroom. My sisters were out with some boys, so I had it all to myself. I whispered for Ginger, and she appeared, walking straight out of the wall. She already knew what I was looking for. Poor little doggy, she said. All gone now, down by the water where the bomb fell. This was a little bit more cryptic than usual. Normally her directions were more straightforward, like the keys are in the bread bin. It only took a few minutes for me to work out where she meant. During the Manchester Blitz, one of the bombs had fallen by the canal south of Eccles. I could walk there and back in an hour, and tomorrow was Saturday. I wanted to be sure before I told Judy. It was worse than I thought it was going to be. The dog was right next to the canal edge, covered in maggots. I ran all the way back home in tears before telling Mum what I'd found. It turned out that someone had killed Molly, taken a knife and slit her open. Not the news that Judy wanted to hear. But at least she knew. As I found out later, it's the not knowing that drives people mad.
carefully finish the last brush stroke. I've only painted for about half an hour this time. The image on the canvas is taking shape quite well, and I sit back, pleased with myself. It will take a while for the pigments to dry, which gives me time to sort out the mess in the bathroom. I always prepare my materials in a bathroom, somewhere that can contain the contents of the human body, and somewhere, preferably, with a drain. What was left now had begun to smell. It didn't repulse me. I found it to be a comforting smell. A smell that reminded me I'd done a good job. What was left of Jack Simmons was folded in the bathtub. Because of the way I killed them, there was usually no mess to clear up, unless they pissed or shat themselves as they were popping off. Jack had done neither, and it was easy to drag him into the bathroom and get him into the bath. I had drilled a couple of holes into his skull for the grey pigment there. There was blood, of course, for red, and to dilute the colours I used the liquid from his eyes. I used a small syringe to extract that. I avoided the digestive system as much as possible. It was difficult enough to keep the canvas fully preserved without adding those bacteria. I could usually do without brown, or yellow for that matter. This time I needed something from a little higher up, and it would take some precision. I could have just gone at his liver with a knife, but again, there was no need to make a mess when I didn't have to. I needed a green pigment. There was a copse of trees next to the structure I had painted, and I would get onto that soon. And the ground cover might be grass, you never know. I take out a long needle syringe from the bag and move Jack onto his left side. The bile duct was situated just behind and under the liver. I'd done my research, but I knew it was going to be a bit of a stab in the dark. It takes me six attempts before I'm able to draw the bright green fluid into the syringe. I keep calm throughout it all not letting the growing frustration take me over. I transfer the bile into a small plastic bottle and put all the tools back in the bag. It was time to be moving on. I've spent about three hours in his flat now, and that was my limit. I wasn't going to dispose of the body. I would just leave it be now. I knew all about Jack Simmons. He didn't have a girlfriend, his so-called friends didn't really like him. His parents lived in Newcastle, he hardly spoke to them. No one would be concerned if he went missing. His work were the only people who might make a fuss. I'd managed to use his computer and send them an email saying he was taking time off. I thought it might be over a week until he was found. 
I always tried to speed up the decomposition process as much as possible. I set the heating on full blast in the bathroom and shut the door behind me. I opened one of his windows so the rest of the flat would get cold. I push a towel in the crack under the bathroom door to limit the smell that would eventually emerge. Any fluids coming out of him would simply run into the drain. It didn't really matter when he was found, but I liked to make their job as difficult as possible. And upsetting. I carefully roll the now dry canvas and store all of my belongings in the long bag. The song has stopped for now. You might think that's a relief, but the moment it's gone, I want to hear it again. is Al Ashworth, creator of the Strange Circle podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to visit the Strange Circle website for more facts, stories and clues. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would be very grateful if you could rate and review, especially on iTunes. If you're feeling generous, please sponsor me on Patreon. This podcast is a labour of love and any help you can give is gratefully received. You can find all the information at pod.strangecircle.org. Thanks for listening.
And that's this week's show. Please check for show notes for Strange Circle at sonicsociety.org. Send us an email at sonicsociety at gmail.com or contact us through the Facebook groups or Twitter. But first, I'm sure I heard Jack's voice. Was it an echo from the past episodes or is he here? We'll find out next week, I'm sure. Until then, I'm David Alt. Stay safe, everyone.